ideally you can kind of let go of this tendency that we have to hide our challenges and and just share it with people because as soon as you break down as soon as you say it someone says well oh yeah I understand that I've you go wow I thought your life was perfect I thought your kids were perfect I thought it was just mine that weren't and we know that's not true Welcome to Wild Peace, a place where parents of kids who struggle can come together for camaraderie, inspiration, and support. If a child in your life faces learning and attentional challenges, developmental differences, or mental health concerns, this is for you. I'm your host, Kendra Wild. Hey, friends. My guest today is Dr. Reva Tankel. She's a mom who's been there, but she's also been a brain trauma researcher, a special education advocate, and a neuropsychologist. I know you might be thinking, wait, what? Yes. She's kind of a superhero, which you know seems to fit with the times because this episode is coming out just as the Avengers Endgame movie's breaking box office records. (laughs) No, but seriously, don't let her accomplishments scare you away. She's great. In our conversation, we talk about how hard it can be for parents to advocate on their own, what a neuropsych evaluation actually is, and what helped Riva herself cope when her own child was struggling. So enjoy meeting Dr. Riva Tankel. Reva, I'm so excited to have you on the show today because your personal and your professional experience really tie in to what so many parents are going through. And I'm just so excited for us to hear some tidbits of wisdom from you because some of us are really in the thick of it and could benefit from some perspective. So thank you for being here today. Well, thank you for having me. I thought maybe we could just start out at the beginning of your career, even pre-kids, and how you started getting interested in the brain. My original training was initially in uh, developmental psychology in my master's Mm -hmm. program. And then in my PhD program, I moved into, into neuropsychology and in a more academic way of looking Mm -hmm. at, at how the brain developed in different functions, kind of in normal populations. Actually, I looked at differences in right and left handers and cognitive processing, which is very interesting. Mm -hmm. But as I moved into a more professional realm, I became very interested and worked in the area of traumatic brain injury. And it started in a rehab facility in Boston, uh, working with people that had sustained pretty significant uh, brain injuries and were in mm-hmm. a long-term care facility where they needed really extensive cognitive and behavioral rehabilitation. And mm-hmm. I, I worked in that field for many years and actually developed a, even a smaller specialty in working with people that had very specific behavioral and psychiatric sequelae from the brain injury. And I worked in that field for you know many years, both, again, in inpatient settings, in group homes, mm-hmm. in all different environments. And I was pretty much entrenched in that area of work until my kids were young and I started to find that that field was, it's a very 24-7 kind of work environment. Not so friendly to parenting. <laughs> 
not so friendly to parents and not so friendly mm-hmm. at times to parents with children with special needs. It was just very wow. hard to be available as I realized over time that I needed to be with my older son. Mm-hmm. So what was going on with him at the time? Well, you know, initially it was uh, it was sort of an evolving picture of mm-hmm. different things that weren't going along, you know, maybe what might have seemed to others as a typical path. Mm-hmm. It was kind of normal for us because we were on that you path. You got used it, to it. It, <laughs> it we, we got, exactly. You know, you adapt to, to what you're dealing with. But when he was about about three or four years old, I think we started to see how some of his sensory challenges, some of his tendency to become overwhelmed in the environment, how mm-hmm. some of his very self-directed behavior that that to us was actually rather endearing at times. Um, again, <laughs> yeah. we had adapted to it. It was normal for us. But mm-hmm. when he had to interact more with the outside world in school, socially with other kids, we started to see that it wasn't really working very well and that he was starting Uh to have more challenges. So when I started down that path of trying to figure out what was the problems, what his needs were, I wanted to be able to be there to work with him in these areas. And I I didn't want to send him to, you know, uh, therapy with a nanny. I wanted to mm-hmm. to be able to be part of it. And I think the other factor was that when he hit the traditional school start, the kindergarten, where there are really expectations on kids mm-hmm. to sit and follow the rules Listen. and do what the teacher said, that was a really hard thing for him. Mm-hmm. And I, at that point, really needed to be available to help. Well, one of us, my, either my husband or I, it wasn't necessarily just me, one of us yeah. had to be available. And actually my husband and I sat down and said, we both looked at the areas that we worked in and kind of had a dialogue. Well, which one of us would be best able to step back from what mm-hmm. we were doing? And we decided that probably it was best for me just because actually at that point, you know, I was in healthcare. Sometimes that can be actually be unstable <laughs> in terms yeah. of the economics of it. So we thought, well, yeah, it makes sense that if we're going to give up one salary and uh, it, it made sense at that point that I, he was more stable in his professional work, Got he'd it. keep working and I would step back. Gosh, that's such a tough decision families face if they are able to, you know, give up a career or pull back for a while. Sometimes uh, so many families need to do that. I've met many people that mm-hmm. have, have done exactly the same thing. Sometimes it's harder when you can't do that. Yeah. Oh, and and, no and doubt. that you know you you would like to, but but you can't. I think we had a bit of an advantage in that our children came later into our family. And mm-hmm. so I'd already had many years of a career. And career. so I didn't feel from the perspective that I was giving anything up. I, I felt pretty comfortable mm-hmm making that shift and that pivot to focusing on on him. And at that point, I also had a, a second son, a younger one, who also needed time. And even though he didn't have any, quote, special needs, he was a special mm-hmm. person. And I think <laughs> a lot of families struggle with this too, is that when you do have a, a child that requires the more time, you have to be very careful to make sure that all of your children need your time. Yes. And so by stepping back from that intense work, environment, I was then able to focus on both of my children. Mm-hmm. So as things evolved and he was going through the early school years, 
What were some of the big lessons you learned as you tried to understand what was going on with him and how to advocate for him? Well, looking back, you know, I think one of the things I learned as I was going along that it it truly Mm -hmm. was a journey. It was an evolving process. The issues changed, the needs changed, and that I and my husband, that that we had to, you know, as much as possible, remain present Mm -hmm. and focused on 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 dealing with what we needed to deal with, making the the hard choices and decisions that we had to make. And I think the biggest lessons were that you have to be patient and, you know, trying to manage the emotional feelings in mm-hmm. a in a productive way and not let it pull you down or get overwhelming, but that allows you to keep thinking and making the best decisions that you can in whatever situation that you're mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. So then I know the next step, which is you became an advocate, right? An educational advocate. How much later did that happen? Not actually not that much later. So a, mm-hmm. a couple of years after I had left working, you know, in the field of, of brain injury, those two years, I definitely focused on family and on, on my son and figuring out how to get things settled for him. And Mm -hmm. one of the ways that that happened was because I guess one of the best things I ever realized was that I I really didn't know what to ask for, exactly what he needed. Yeah, I had to step back from thinking that I could do that to looking outward to the professionals, Mm -hmm. neuropsychologists who evaluated him and gave us insight into what was going on. That was very important to do. And then when it came to dealing with the school district and knowing what he needed from the educational system, I also needed a professional to help me with that because Mm -hmm. I might've had a a degree in psychology, but I did not have a degree in special education. I had no experience Mm -hmm. with special education. And so I didn't know how to proceed with that. And I learned that sometimes if you don't know the rules, it can come back to hurt the process because you didn't ask for the right thing or do it the right way. And well, when you're in the middle of it, you almost can't even think about learning all of that. It's very complicated. And so when I, when I realized what I didn't know, I then followed some advice of friends and hired an advocate. So that's how I first Uh heard about advocacy. I hired one and Mm. she was remarkably helpful in a number of ways. First of all, I felt an immediate sense of relief that I was going to get some guidance, that I was going to get the help I needed to move forward, which she did Mm -hmm. right away. She also knew the laws and could help me navigate the process. And so over that next six or eight months after we we hired the advocate and, and worked with her, we were able to move things in the right direction. And my son was able to move into a school setting that better met his needs. Mm, that's good. And it was very good. And when that happened, then after things settled down, I realized, hey, I don't need to be sitting at home waiting for the call to, <laughs> to deal with a, <laughs> a crisis anymore. They, mm-hmm. they actually had the skills to do that. And they also, the, the crises diminished. So that was even mm-hmm. better. So within a few months, I started thinking, well, now what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. But one thing I realized was that I really did not 
want to go back to that 24-7 world of brain injury at work. That, that was mm-hmm. not going to fit where I was and what I, where I wanted to be and the needs of myself and my family. So, so I had to start, I, I didn't really know what I would do. And it, it was one of these uh, serendipitous kinds of things. I was sitting Love in that. a waiting room while my son was in some social skills group. And someone mentioned to me that the Federation for Children with Special Needs in Boston has a training mm-hmm. program for advocates. And I remember thinking, oh, well, that's how you become an advocate. I, I had no idea. And I, yeah. I thought, well, <laughs> maybe I'll do that. And literally, probably within two or three weeks, I was signed up and started the training program in Boston. Uh, oh, actually, in Worcester was where the class I took mm-hmm. and did that training. And what I learned, I mean, I learned an enormous amount through that training. I learned the laws and the regulations, but I also learned about how you can help families navigate through the system. And Mm -hmm. so between that, and I also made some very important connections with other people who were training to be advocates who had a variety of experiences that have become kind of now lifelong friends and colleagues and resources as we all work to figure out how to help families. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's how I became an advocate. What I found was that, you know, many people who kind of find themselves in this world had like, like myself had never expected Mm -hmm. to be there, but there we were. And maybe we didn't get off to such a great start because we didn't know the rules, the regulations, we didn't know how to navigate it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I, as somebody who'd been through it could now help someone else find a way through it the learning curve is so steep. You don't know what you don't know. And I, I remember there's this very, it's a difficult time because you want to trust the professionals, but you don't know what to ask for. And you have to kind of balance your own expertise on your kid with what people are telling you. And you're a little bit suspicious. You don't know if everyone has their best interest in mind. So you, you know, it's kind of scary. It is very scary. And I think that's the way parents, myself included, and then many, the hundreds of families that I worked with so often approach it with that fear that they have real Mm -hmm. legitimate concerns about their kids. And they're thinking about the now and the future. They're worried that what they're getting is not going to move the needle far enough for their kids to have Mm -hmm. the kind of life that we all want for our kids. Mm -hmm. And so they bring we all brought that emotional feeling to the table and where the advocate can help, where I was helped. And then I hope I helped other people in the subsequent Mm -hmm. years was to be able to, families cannot leave that emotional feelings at the door. They can't, they've got them. They have to, but they have to be able to keep it in check and feel that someone else is taking it in a more professional, rational way and yeah. having the discussion, asking the right questions, getting the right answers, or at least getting answers to the questions. Yeah. When we as families have these, the more emotional reaction, we tend to just try to talk too much. We try to mm. convince everybody that 
that they about should care. What we well, <laughs> yeah. we know they care. You know, uh-huh. I don't think that anybody mm-hmm. goes into education or teaching because they don't care about children because they do care, but they mm-hmm. don't always know what to do or maybe have the resources or have the support to say it. And so we, the family, and sometimes the teachers too, they, they need somebody objective to kind of lay out how things ought to be in order to meet the goals for that child and and to be able to Mm -hmm. have a collaborative, cooperative discussion. And sometimes the emotions that the parents have make it hard to have that discussion. But and I, I always felt that in certain situations, the advocate can help have that discussion. And then mm-hmm. the advocate can also provide the family the support after the fact of what to do next. Mm-hmm. Because sometimes we don't get the answer that we want or we, the, the recommendations, uh, let's say a, a family gets a, a private evaluation from neuropsychologists mm-hmm. or speech therapists or some other professional outside and they bring the report to the school and mm-hmm. the school doesn't agree and they don't want to mm-hmm. do what the private evaluator said. And that can be frustrating for families because they're trusting the professional. They paid for the evaluation. They'd like to see those recommendations implemented. And yeah. so that can create some tension between the parents and the school when schools choose not to do that. And that is their right to choose not to do it. And I think what's important for for the advocates in this situation is to help the families kind of step back and recognize their procedural rights. And Mm -hmm. that means to maintain a collaborative and cooperative relationship with the school, but to Mm -hmm. be able to exercise their rights in a rational and a calm and patient manner. Because sometimes parents feel like, the school won't do it or they won't do what our, my professional is saying and they'll no matter what i do they won't do it and it creates a lot of negative feelings whereas the fam can just say well okay we 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 disagree we can disagree our professionals your school's a professional outside professionals disagree so we have procedural ways within the state to help resolve these differences it can be mediation mm-hmm. It could be a hearing if that's necessary, that that's a way to resolve these differences so that we can all go forward and make the best decision for a particular child. So again, the advocate's yeah. role is is to kind of navigate through all of this in a way that that you're going to be able to meet the child's needs. And at the end of the day, you, you want everyone to feel comfortable that the both the school district and the parents, that the child is making progress in the right direction. Gosh, I can imagine how calming it is to have someone like you come along to any of these meetings. I hope so. I mean, I think that's really what 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 advocates should do. And what's interesting is mm-hmm. that although many people who became advocates like myself might have had some difficult experiences of their own at the beginning, you have to put that aside. Yep. And I think most advocates I know do exactly that. And that is when families are come to us, majority of time when they come to an advocate, they are feeling very, um, maybe angry and mistrustful Mm -hmm. of the school district. And it's really our job to calm them down and help them see that that's just not a way, Mm -hmm. uh, a more positive, open, and, and to try to reestablish trust. It is very important for, for parents 
to understand that regardless of the differences of opinion and regardless of how much you know you may feel that the school district is not meeting your child's needs remaining cooperative with the school district is critical to the mm-hmm. process yeah. because if you have to go to the greater lengths of mediation or a hearing not being able to show that you really tried to work with the district in a positive way does not help and so so as much as i certainly appreciate how frustrated and angry families can be you know we advocates still have to help them step back from from that and mm-hmm. focus on the child and their needs in a way that's going to be most effective for the long term. So you've talked about neuropsych evaluations again at the beginning when you were trying to understand what was going on with your own son and mm-hmm. and also sometimes as a tool to use in approaching school about special education. Let's switch gears a little bit and talk about neuropsych evaluations and because I know you know a little bit about them. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, yeah, let me start by saying you'd asked earlier about kind of how I kind of moved professionally from working yeah. in brain injury and then I was worked as an advocate. I personally also took another pivot professionally. Mm. After about seven years working as an advocate, uh, hundreds of families, I, I, it was very rewarding work. Mm-hmm. But I then had the opportunity to shift again professionally and to retrain with a more focus on the pediatric and adolescent neuropsychological evaluations. Mm -hmm. So although I'd been trained as a neuropsychologist way back, working actually more with an adult population, which helped me when I needed to read my son's neuropsych eval as an advocate, when I read other people's, I certainly could read them and understand them. I didn't really have Mm -hmm. the, the experience of my own of, of testing and working with a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. As an advocate, I could see how important the neuropsychological tests were to making, uh, to getting a deeper understanding of the child's needs, and at times to presenting this information to the school district was very helpful in even for the school for everyone to to understand mm-hmm. what the child's needs were. The opportunity came to me by meeting the director of a neuropsychology practice of Nesca in Newton. The opportunity came to me to actually spend some time training with the neuropsychologist there to gain wow. expertise to be a pediatric neuropsychologist myself. So, You're now a, a superpower. <laughs> <laughs> I have little I have bits of everything, right? <laughs> I like to think that. <laughs> Let's back up just for a minute for for parents who might be listening who who haven't had their child evaluated. Can you just give us a, a neuropsych evaluations 101? Mm-hmm. What do you learn from one? Well, a neuropsychological evaluation, it, it is rather a dynamic process and mm-hmm. it changes and can be somewhat different for, it should be a little different for every child. At a core level, we're looking at that child's core cognitive processing. How do they process language? Mm-hmm. How do they think problem solve and reason with words? How do they think problem solve and reason with pictures? Um, mm-hmm. It expands to other aspects of cognitive processing, how their attentional skills, executive functioning skills, right? Those higher order mm-hmm. goal-directed behaviors. How is their learning and memory? How's their visual motor skills, visual spatial skills? 
All of these are aspects of how our brain functions and how we process information. So a neuropsychological evaluation is going to look broadly at all of these areas. Mm -hmm. But then a neuropsychological evaluation definitely has to be specifically focused on a particular child and what are the referral questions for that child. Because mm -hmm. there are many different areas that one might look at and one wants to take a deeper dive into those areas that either seem problematic or things that seem to be getting in the way. For example, if a parent comes in and is talking about that their child seems to really have difficulty focusing and attention, well, then you're going to mm -hmm. really want to understand their attentional issues and maybe a little bit more. Whereas if a family comes in and says, well, that's not really a problem. It, it, the, the issue seems to be more related to spatial processing or mm -hmm. maybe social skills and Reading. things that are more related mm -hmm. to, um, you know, maybe a spectrum disorder kinds of things. So there, there are a lot of different questions. And so one of the important parts of a neuropsychological evaluation is that first intake setting where you sit down with the family and you talk about the child's development and their history. You understand what are their concerns because there's always a concern. There's always something that the parent is concerned about hmm. that brings them to the testing. And usually it has to do with their behavior and emotional behavior at school or at home. And oftentimes it has to do with their performance academically at school. So it can be by, mm -hmm. you know, first or second or third grade, they're concerned, hey, you know, my child's reading is not developing as expected, or they don't seem to be able to, to hold on to information. They're having trouble mm -hmm. in math. So sometimes the problem is how it affects them academically. But the neuropsychologist is also going to step back and look at some of those underlying and foundational skills that mm -hmm. might be contributing to the actual problem in the academic area and trying to make a connection between the challenges that they're having and the academic weaknesses that they're having. So yeah. many parents who have come in for neuropsychological evaluation, many the, the children have already been evaluated by the schools. And mm -hmm. so they've had some testing of their cognitive functioning and testing of their academic functioning. Then the question is, what does a neuropsychological evaluation add to that? And, and sometimes the big thing is that it goes broader at times and deeper um, because mm -hmm. it's more extensive testing. And so it can give a broader understanding of what are the underlying challenges for that particular child. Yeah. One of the things I never even realized is that a neuropsych evaluation, as you said, it's a dynamic process and you have a battery of tests that you could choose from depending on what you're trying to understand. And exactly. Right. That, so the parent involvement and their feedback and, and even teacher input, anyone else's input who's, who's cared for that child is so helpful for you to, to determine what direction to take the testing, what to look at. Well, it's critical because that's the information that tells you where to start. Yeah. You look at the previous testing, very important to provide the neuropsychologist any testing that they've had before, because that kind of gives you a starting point. The developmental history gives you a starting point. What the teachers say gives you a starting point of what you need to look at. But then the testing process also gives you mm. information. And one of the things that the way that, that at NESCA we do our evaluations that I think is good that we're generally able to do that is that we can divide the testing into two or three different sessions, different days. Mm. And mm -hmm. that means that after the first session, 
it gets scored. You can look at it. And so then even if it's something that you didn't realize as you were giving it kind of was a little bit different than you expected, you say, oh, wow, that's unexpected or that's, I, I need to understand that better. That means the second mm-hmm. session, I need to give this test or I need to look at this more deeply, even if it's not something that you were expecting from the intake or anything else. So it is one of the process approach to neuropsychology is that it's it's almost like you're you're a detective when you're doing the mm-hmm. testing and you're mm-hmm. you're searching to better understand and you have to follow the clues um, in the <laughs> testing. And so you have to be yeah. aware of what they are in order to follow them to to get your best understanding of again that child and how they're processing information and and for the parents and for the schools it's what's getting in the way of them achieving to their full potential because there's something's getting in the way and we're trying to figure out what that is yeah and it's just what incredible information to get out of a neuropsych evaluation i mean i feel like everyone should be able to get one because you learn so much about where kids have strengths where they have vulnerabilities what skills are lacking and what to emphasize, you know, we, we can also really look at this is this kid's a visual learner. So let's accommodate this way. Yeah, exactly. It helps really look at the strengths and the challenges. Mm-hmm. And and you do want to find for every child, you want to find those areas where they can shine. Because certainly yeah. our kids do struggle a lot with self-confidence and image. And yes. for some, the awareness of the challenges that they face is overwhelming. And school sometimes highlights what's difficult for them. And so for parents to be aware of that, sensitive to it, but also know their strengths so that they're in the right club or they're in the right activity after school. Mm -hmm. So their teachers Mm -hmm. know where they can shine. So within the school setting, they could, you know, this, this child has this, you know, enormous strength and knowledge around history. Let's, let's make sure that that this child can shine in history, even though we know they struggle in math. And and so for teachers to be able to help parents highlight their children's strengths is is just terrific for that child. Mm -hmm. I love that. So Reva, when you think about your own, your own challenges as a parent, how has that helped you when you do advocating or when you do neuropsychological evaluations? My guess is that you went through a stressful parenting journey like many of us and that it must help you empathize. I'm just really interested to understand how your parenting experience has helped you in your career. Well, it it certainly has helped. It it helped in terms of shaping it because I certainly went in very different directions <laughs> than I expected, uh, you know, 20 years ago. Yeah, it opened a lot of doors. It opened doors which I actually am very grateful for because I I think I've been able to have a, an impact, you know, in a different way than I was having before. But I mean, as a clinician, mm-hmm. we all, we want to have impact. That's why we do the work, be it brain injury or, you know, in, as an advocate or neuropsychologist, we're all trying to have an impact. I feel, you know, personally very grateful for the opportunities in some ways that, that my son has opened mm-hmm. up for me. Um, I don't regret, <laughs> yeah. I don't regret it at all. You know, I certainly empathize, absolutely can empathize with parents. I hope that, you know, at times I can use the kind of knowledge of those places where I've made good decisions and those places maybe where I didn't make such good decisions Mm -hmm. and maybe things didn't work out as well, that I can weave that into my recommendations and discussions with parents that that it, it has framed how I understand 
the process of accessing special ed services and how to navigate the system. I, I certainly learned a lot um, by being a parent in that. And also, you know, yes, having had, like the parents I work with, live with the uncertainty and mm-hmm. with the fear and concern, like what's going to happen? Uh, you know, are we ever going to get through kindergarten? <laughs> I didn't, we didn't, we weren't <laughs> sure, you know, and then it's like, okay, are we going to get through elementary school, middle school? E- every step of the way is, mm-hmm. is a, a part of that journey. And at each point, again, we all struggle with, we don't know how it's going to come out and, and we make the best decisions that we can. And I do reinforce this with parents. We all make the best decisions that we can. You know, we need to stay focused and use our resources and be careful and thoughtful in what we do. But if we're doing that, mm-hmm. we're making the best decisions that we can. And I do have the luxury of the 2020 hindsight at this point, being having gone through each of those stages with all of the fears and concerns that I know the families I work with have and you know, feel that we made it through and, and have made it through many challenges that we didn't know. My husband and I didn't know how it was going to come out. And we've gotten to young adulthood. We're, we're really pleased Hooray. with where we're at, mm-hmm. um, but we know there are more challenges in the future. So, right. uh, you know, again, for all of us with children, whether you have a, a typical or a, a, a child that had special needs, obviously we have we all have concerns about our kids. We all worry about the futures yeah. and want the best for them regardless. There's a little different feeling, I think, that those of us with, with children that didn't launch in a typical way, mm-hmm. we are going to worry differently and, and we have to stay involved and engaged and as helpful as we can to make sure that skills that our typical children might be developing naturally, that we're continuing to provide the supports so that they continue along in in a positive way. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I like to think that I can bring some sense of, yeah, there can be good outcomes if we kind of stay the course and that Mm -hmm. that is possible. And that even though it feels so bumpy when you're going through it, there can be, what's that, the pot of gold at the end of that rainbow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I would love to hear some lessons, some things that you wish you had known at the beginning of your journey. Because it's true at every stage and phase and transition, you learn so much and you you wish you had known more back at the beginning. What would you tell parents now? Well, to some extent, though, I don't know, but to some extent, maybe you're afraid to know everything that you're going to have to deal with. (laughs) Right. Take it one step at a time, because Mm -hmm. otherwise, if you do get caught up with, you know, oh, my God, how am I going to transition from high school to young adulthood when you've got a kid that's in first grade? Like, you know, you you go. It's okay. You'll get there. You'll Right. So wait (laughs) till you get there. But I I think the the biggest thing that I learned, then maybe it would have been helpful to know. But again, I don't know how I could have known it until I went through it. Mm. is how much you get by having the right support from the people around you. And what I have found most helpful was that when I was ready to really open up and talk to people in Mm -hmm. my community, I was able to establish the right kind of personal connections that I needed to get through it. And the only way that you can do that is to share about the struggles that you're having. And if you keep it inside and if you don't want anybody to know, then you're going to carry the burden all by yourself. 
But as soon as Mm -hmm. you talk to people, you're going to find out there are so many people that one place or another in their lives, they have a struggle. And then you form the connections and the friendships that really get you through it. And for me, that was one of the most important things that, that I was able to to develop over those years. And to this day, even though my kids are now in their early 20s, these are still my best friends now wow. because we, mm-hmm. sh- we shared so much. And I, I think the other thing that I would kind of recommend to people to think about is there's also the more professional directed kind of support out there. So when my son was quite young and he was in a, a therapeutic school, that school mm-hmm. offered parent support group. And I made sure I was there every Wednesday at two o'clock, no matter what, (laughs) I was there at that group. And initially when I started it, I was the one that needed so much support from the others that had been there a few years ahead of me. And Mm -hmm. and I could listen to them and what they were dealing with. And I would say, oh, but my son, this, this, and this. And they'd say, don't worry, you will get there. You'll get to that. I could see the future to some extent in a positive Mm -hmm. way, get the Mm -hmm. support I needed to get through the now. And then after about two, three years, all of a sudden, I was the one that had been through a lot of it. And then I could help the next younger families that were coming into the school. And so this way, you both feel you're getting the support, which is critical, and that you're then able to use what you've learned to help others. And then it does make it feel like, wow, this was really worth it because Mm -hmm. I can now help others ease their way in through this process. So I hadn't actually really thought of it, but in some ways that was sort of my first introduction to a kind of a a sense of advocacy, even though I wasn't an advocate at that point of trying to use what you've been through to help other people face it without it seeming so overwhelming. So again, I think the, the biggest takeaway and lesson is to realize that ideally you can kind of let go of this tendency that we have to hide our, you know, our, our challenges and, and just share yes. it with people. Because as soon as you break down, as soon as you say it, someone says, well, oh yeah, I understand that. I've, you go, wow, I thought your life was perfect. I thought your kids were perfect. <laughs> I thought it was just mine that weren't. And we know that's not true. And so again, it, it gives you so much more of a, a sense of community and a sense and, and decreases any isolation that as a parent you might yeah. experience if you mm-hmm. don't open up and share. So to me, that was just a critical lesson over these years. I love that. I, I've had the same experience. It, it's just, you, you can feel so alone and you, maybe you know statistically that there are a lot of kids struggling, but it feels like you're the only one. And the minute you just open the door a crack and yep. share something with someone you think you can trust, You'd just be amazed at how many parents say, either they say me too, or they Mm -hmm. say, wait, I need to connect you with this friend of mine who's going through the same thing. Exactly. And you just, all of a sudden the doors open all around you and you realize there's a whole network of people who are there to help you who have similar experiences and ideas and resources and strategies that they want to share. And it feels good to help people too. Right. And it feels really good to get help. And when it works, and then it's like (laughs) huge. Yes. (laughs) Absolutely. So before we wrap up, Reva, I would love to just know, I have to ask everybody this, if there's a quote or a mantra or anything that you live by that helps you get through every day. Um, I think for myself, a lot of times, the mantra sometimes is like, slow down, think it through. Whatever I have to face, 
maybe it's not my natural personality to be to take things easy and slowly, but mm-hmm. in this situation, in these situations with my with my family, with my son, I know I do best when I slow it down and think it through carefully before reacting. And so to me, that's my, my mantra, slow down and think it through. Slow down and think it through. I think that's so true. And it applies to everything, everything from your parenting decisions to every decision you're making in life. Absolutely. That is a really great word of wisdom to end on. Thank you so much for sharing your story today. It's, it's really fascinating. And I think we learned a lot. I learned a lot. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure talking with you. You've been listening to Wild Peace, a podcast created to bolster parents of kids who are struggling with mental health, learning issues, developmental differences, and more. If you'd like to suggest a guest or share your story, we would love to hear from you. Go to wildpeace.org, that's W-I-L-D-P-E-A-C-E dot org, to leave suggestions, see show notes from this episode, and explore more resources. You can also leave a message at 617-433-8582. Since this is a podcast, we especially love hearing your voice. And if you enjoy what you're hearing, please take a minute to rate us on Apple Podcasts. Just scroll down to those five purple stars and click. Your positive reviews will ensure that more parents who could use some wild peace can find us. This show is a production of Wild Peace for Parents, a nonprofit dedicated to helping parents find calm and build resilience. Because child well-being starts with parent well-being. Thank you.